This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Okay, welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Christy Grant Hart. And we're here live at the Institute of Directors in London. The sun is shining and I am absolutely thrilled to be talking with Christy today, who can tell her own story, but I'm going to to kick it off briefly, but welcome. Thank you so much, I'm thrilled to be here. So Christy is the founder and CEO of Spark Compliance and a renowned expert on transforming compliance departments into in-demand business assets. So I can't wait to learn more about that. She's the author of the highly acclaimed books, How to Be a Wildly Effective Compliance Officer and The Wildly Strategic Compliance Officer. So I would like today to talk about how to be a wildly effective and strategic risky woman. Fantastic, (laughs) I'm I'm on it, let's do it. She's advised Fortune 500 companies on international compliance. She's created and revamped compliance programs for major companies in Europe and the United States. And I know you also go out to Asia as well. I do. Yes, indeed. Um, So it was the title of the two books, though, that really, you know, made me want to talk, talk to you and learn more. So let's get started. And... You've had a fantastic career journey, so can you tell us more about your career journey to date and how you ended up in compliance? Uh, Sure. Um, Bizarrely, I actually started my career in film and television, which confuses people (laughs) almost immediately. Um, I have a film and television degree from UCLA. Uh, I worked in Hollywood for a couple of years and then decided that uh, I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be paid to travel and to make more money. So I went to law school at night, worked full-time during the day, um, got a job at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, um, where they had the Siemens Corporate Monitorship, the the biggest anti-bribery fine in the world at the time. And uh, I just fell in love with all of it. It was white-collar crime. It was interesting. I love the idea of stopping bribery and corruption. Um, And so began to focus in on the FCPA work. Um, I was moved to London in 2011 to work on the LIBOR investigation. Um, for UBS back in Switzerland and oh, in, wow. in London. Another huge case. A huge case. And uh, during that time, I went online dating and married a Brit. Wow. So, <laughs> this was an unexpected outcome. Uh, so at that point, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm not a British solicitor. Um, and then I went to see a recruiter who said to me, listen, you've got this data privacy background, um, antitrust, uh, anti-bribery. You should go into compliance. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> what are you talking about? So we started. I started to look into it in detail and thought, oh, this really makes sense for me. Um, And then I went and became the director of um, compliance at Carlson Wagonley Travel for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Um, That was uh, in charge of 100 countries. And then was um, headhunted to be the chief compliance officer uh, for United International Pictures, which is the the joint um, company of Paramount and Universal Pictures for distribution in 65 countries. And that was amazing because I asked the recruiter, why did you call me? And she goes, well, you're the only person we could find with a film degree and film experience in compliance in London. So it all came full circle. 
That's um, interesting as well in terms of how all of these different elements come together and I always think that's interesting from a career perspective because people often think of things I think in a really linear um, approach and I don't think anything's going to happen that way going forward. Now, I mean, once the books came out, I've been doing keynote speeches for up to 3,000 people and my goodness, all that monologue training in college, like when I was practicing on stage and things, that even came back full circle. So it's been amazing to me to watch it happen. That's interesting because a lot of people say, you know, things that they learned at school and, and university that they never use. So therefore, you know, you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. And, um, you know, so it's interesting then because it's like, did you choose compliance or did compliance choose you? And it was a bit of a mix of both. I mean, I think that my passions were very uh, properly lent. Uh, I thought I was going to be a litigator because I liked the stage. And so that idea of being um, on stage in front of a jury seemed to be very real. But actually, it turns out I hated arguing. And so compliance was so much better because it was creating consensus, building groups, making people... Um, influenced to do the things that I needed them to do but then still having the theatricality that could make it more compelling and interesting so I think that compliance was absolutely the right choice and I was excited to find it because I didn't know it existed yeah wow that's fascinating and so it sounds like you're very passionate about compliance and so would you recommend a career in compliance yeah I mean I think it depends on who the person is um, but I think particularly for a lot of lawyers um, who hate what they're doing it's a brilliant choice, and I think that um, it, it draws on so many strengths. If you've been in sales, if you've been in accounting, if you've been in audit, there's so many great skill sets that can bring um, real uh, benefit to the, to the profession. So I just think it's great. And obviously, it's actually a fairly highly in-demand um, you know, talent pool at the moment. There is an increase in the number of compliance officers required by banks and other industries as well. Yeah, every once in a while somebody says the sky is falling and technology is going to steal all the jobs and on and on and on and I just think, have you paid any attention? You know, people are not committing less crimes, darling. Yeah. So we are, we're not going to be in less demand, it's the opposite. And, and what, do you, what has been, obviously you've done so many different things from being an author, from coming from the law, etc. What are some of the biggest risks that you've taken in your career? I mean, without a doubt, the, I would say moving to London. I didn't, I didn't realize that was going to be a permanent move, but, um, but that took a lot of moxie, I suppose. Uh, far and away, the scariest thing I did was to start Spark Compliance Consulting, because originally it was just me. We were undercapitalized, and I didn't even know that name. I didn't know what it meant. Um, but now we've grown into London, Los Angeles, Atlanta. Uh, putting out the book was terrifying because I was mostly afraid of you know, criticism or people not liking it. Um, and while I've had hugely positive responses, some people don't like it. And, and getting used to that has taken time. So, I mean, I love it. You know, one of the things that we want to do with Risky Women Radio is really bring female expert voices forward and amplify and put a spotlight on that. So let's, you know, the books obviously I think are really interesting and exciting. So, and I think it's not something that everyone does. So you started off obviously with blogs and then you've, you know, built them out into to books. So maybe start with, you know, your passion for compliance and why you think compliance is so important. And then we'll get into what you've covered in the book. Sure. Um, look, I think compliance people lose sight frequently of what it is that they're really doing. And I think 
for me, the idea that we have the opportunity to change the way that the world of business works to make the world more fair and genuinely a better place, this is a miraculous opportunity. And when you're doing your little job in your desk and you don't feel like you're making any difference or you're just checking boxes, it just feels like it doesn't matter. But when you look at the aggregate of what we're doing, particularly when you're looking at the, the role that bribery and slavery play in the world, even privacy, I mean, you're talking about things that are fundamentally critical to human life. You're part of a movement that's changing the world. That is an unbelievable, incredible place. And when you see it that way, you know, we don't have to be church missionaries. We can be the people working in corporations, and I think that can be even more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. It touches on so many areas of the business. And as you say, when you look at the impact of financial crime, of bribery, of corruption, and how it then plays in with things like slavery, which I'm a very uh, passionate advocate of how we work to solve that problem, yeah. um, it's, it's fascinating. So what does a wildly effective <laughs> compliance manager look like? I think it's one that is really integrated properly with the business where they know, the business knows that they can count on you uh, because you are smart and strategic, you are working to make it better, but you're also having such a strong sense of integrity that they know if no means no, no means no, but that you're gonna try to get to yes. And how can we work on this together? So that's a good point in terms of, um, you know, the compliance function, you've said a couple of things there, not being just a tick box function, and also that getting to yes, so not being seen as some kind of business prevention function, but a business enabler. And you talk about it as being, um, the compliance function as being an in-demand function. Mm -hmm. So what makes it that in-demand function? How does it really work with the business to get to yes? I think that the most important thing is to position yourself properly because ultimately we're all going to have to say yes or no to things um, based on the law, based on corporate values, based on what we think is the right thing to do. So in terms of being wildly effective, I think that the most important piece is just allowing people to know that you're on the team too. You understand the business goals. You understand what the profitability um, desires look like and what the margins are and how your role plays into that. Um, but I think that it's also convincing people and helping them to understand the worth that you bring in terms of protection. And I think that when they start to see you as an enabler to get where they want, they don't want to have fines and embarrassment and things. And so my job is to help you not end up in that position. Yeah. And when you make it about what they want, it changes things. That's great, yeah. And then the second book, um, you talked about being highly strategic. So tell us more about how compliance can be more strategic and work with the business. So I love, the, third, the second book is a wildly strategic workbook and it's a workbook because it requires you to think through your own strategy. So one of the fundamental things that I see compliance officers struggle with is they don't know what their remit is. So when people, I was at a dinner party and somebody said to me, compliance with what? And I thought, that is a fascinating question, right? Because like, yeah. some people have health and safety, some people have trade sanctions, some people have AML, some people don't have AML, they only have compliance with what? And what happens is if you're not strategic in defining what it is you're responsible for, something goes wrong. Well, isn't that yours? Aren't you compliance? Okay, yes, but, right, so figuring out what am I in charge of, once I figure out what I'm in charge of, how am I going to deal with it? How do I set the kind of goals that other people agree to 
so that when I accomplish them, I can take credit for that. Or if we have a crisis, that I can change my goals, get buy-in on that, and then I can still reach what I was supposed to be doing, even in dealing with the crisis. So it sets you up for success to be strategic mm. about what it is you're going to accomplish and to be strategic about what it is you handle and don't handle so that there's no confusion about that. Yeah, that's very interesting. So the so it's a workbook, so you've got kind of checklists and yep. um, sort of a process that people that's can correct. walk through. Yes, and how to do their own goal setting and, where, you know, looking at training, looking at governance, looking at um, communications, looking at policy, procedure, all those things in it relating to the areas of risk we've now defined as ours. How do we do goal setting for that? What's our dashboards look like? Really allowing people to get their own program in order. And that's good as well because I think increasingly people want metrics-driven approaches so 100%. they can understand if they're successful or not. Yes. Um, and it also, I think, simplifies it for a lot of other functions right. in the business. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds very useful. So, I mean, another question that I think we've discussed um, a little bit on the Risky Women Radio, but certainly one that I do talk about with um, with our customers is does compliance and, and the, the function and the people in the team have the right, have a strong enough voice and do they have a seat at the right table? I mean, I think the, the answer is typically no. Um, I think particularly in financial services, uh, I see it as a more... Um, negatively viewed function than in a lot of corporate compliance. Uh, many more corporate compliance officers are in charge of ethics and culture yeah. in a way that financial services ones simply aren't. Um, I think that's changing a little bit with conduct risk, but not fast enough. So I, I don't think that they are at the right level. And I think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the value compliance brings to being in the room when decisions are being made, because we don't want to undo this stuff, right? If you've got the right person in the room saying, well, hold on, hold on, let's rethink this. How can we structure it so it is compliant? That if you under, if management can understand that value, even from a time and money perspective, that that can really change it. But I, I don't think we're there yet. And I think that's really interesting because you've got ethics and culture. And I, you know, I was uh, speaking with a um, a head of reputation risk, and obviously, all of them are very intertwined: ethics, culture, reputation, which ultimately leads to trust. And we've had so many issues in um, the financial markets. Um, even you know, at the moment, there's the um, Australian uh, Royal Commission into the banks in Australia, and it's almost like a daily feed of reputational issues yep. and challenges that have gone on. So, I, I think it's a really interesting thing the the whole ethics and, and the culture piece and what that how that plays in with with compliance. None of these things can be neatly separated, um, and I think it really increases the focus on compliance. Yeah, and it should. It's, it's really hard, though, because you're talking about metrics, right? Yeah. How do you measure culture easily? How do you measure ethics? I mean, there are some very good consulting groups that try, and I'm not saying that it's valueless, but it's really hard to get a sense of what does that actually mean and how do people experience it every day so that they, they gain trust or that the shares go up, right? Reputation, yes. to me, it all comes back to economics so frequently, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. What I think we need to do is speak that language more effectively to say this reputation thing drives shareholder value drives investment, drives um, our ability to make deals and get deals and work with governments. Those things have economic value. Yeah, and then increasingly, hopefully, people also want to do the right thing and that also then has a positive impact Absolutely. on investment and everything 100%. else. 100%. So what have you, I mean, you've obviously worked all over the world. You've done lots of 
uh, worked in different industries as well, which I think is fascinating. And now, obviously, in your own business, you're working with a, a range of different companies. So what are some of the sort of most interesting cases and projects? I mean, you mentioned LIBOR, which must have been fairly <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, Li- LIBOR involved reading hundreds and thousands of chats from bankers to each other. So it was a good thing that I'd, I'd met my husband at the time or I might have forced, forsworn men forever. Um, but I think that uh, just honestly getting into a business, right? Um, and I think right now I love our modern slavery work. I think that it's so interesting and so gratifying when you really start to think about it. Um, because in a lot of institutions, people just say we don't have any risk. You know, particularly in London or in um, Europe, they well, we don't have any slaves. Have you talked to your cleaning crew? Do you know where they came from? What about your temporary workers? Who does the cafeteria work? Going into that kind of thing where people open their eyes. Who does your construction on your sites? Do you have subcontractors? Do you know who they are? Oh my God, like that has been so exciting. I think it's really interesting um, because potentially like in Asia you've got some things that are much more obvious to you. So you think, oh my God, there could be a slavery risk here domestic helpers that you know most of us have in our um, homes Um, there's just you know things that make you question it more I've got to admit you know when you're walking around London it just doesn't seem quite as obvious and I think some of it is in plain sight but people are not asking those questions as you said um, around slavery and I do think it's interesting with the you know, you've got the regulation, mm-hmm. um, uh, you've got companies, you know, required to make statements for their modern slavery um, uh, act requirements, but some of those are not really uh, looking, as you say, digging into all of the elements. We, we have clients on both sides of this fence. So we've had, we have clients that are just so committed and it is in, it is, it makes my heart sing about mm. how much they care. And I've gotten a couple of phone calls from people who will not be named. And they've said, you know, can you write our modern slavery statement? Sure, what have you done? No, 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 we just need you to write the statement. (laughs) The statement has to have something in it, guys, you know? Um, So I think that there's a huge divide and and hopefully we're getting there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's that's fascinating and I, you know, love to, we could probably spend (laughs) another podcast on that. Um, So in 2018, you know, what is the event or the areas that your clients or the, 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 the industries that you're working with, what are they most focused on and why is that the, the focus for this year, do you think? Uh, I mean, obviously privacy is the big, yeah. is the ding, ding, ding answer right now. Um, we've done tons of G- GDPR readiness, particularly for uh, American companies because mm-hmm. um, we do have our strong American presence and they just go, I don't get it, help me, let me figure it out. And right now we're doing a lot of audits to help people see how close are we? How much have we done? Is it enough? Can I tell my board that we're compliant? How can I prove that to them? So I think that privacy has far and away been the most um, interesting and important thing this year. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see how much that continues based on whether or not we see a lot of um, enforcement or whether it's just kind of, oh, the boogeyman went away. It's not a big deal. It'll be interesting to see. And what do you think is the impact of some of the um, issues that I guess are being highlighted at a consumer level so you know Facebook you know all of those kind of things that people are now actually seeing from a personal level yeah. what's the is that helping businesses take um, more action and understand the 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think that the most important, th- I mean, the Facebook thing is fascinating, right? We're watching the, the stock tumble. Yeah. Um, and, and all these ads in London that are saying, you know, we don't, we're trying, we're trying, yeah. essentially. They're, yeah. they're saying, we sorry, we messed this up. Um, I think that particularly when I'm in the United States, it just shocks me. Uh, at this point, because I'll be at a store and I will be buying, you know, a pair of jeans in cash, and they'll say, uh, "What's your email address? What's your zip code? Can you give me your name?" You know, I was in a, a store like, buying a bra, and they said to me, "You know, we're going to record your size." I'm like, "No, you're not." Well, next time you come in, we can help you. I'm, no, no, no. I, I do not want you having my bra size. You know, but it's just normal in sort of America. Yeah. They don't see typically the privacy thing as being an issue, whereas you try to do that in London. Good luck. You know, yeah. like people walk out. Um, but I think that's part of what's changing, and I think GDPR is creating an understanding between GDPR and the crisis of Cambridge Analytica and yes. Facebook that people are really beginning to go, oh my gosh, my my privacy is important, my data is meaningful, and I need to be in control of who has it. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating and um, I think it's going to be interesting how quickly people learn from it. Um, one thing that staggers me, and we're, we're probably getting totally off topic here, but um, is the um, DNA data that everyone's oh Lord, doing right, these the DNA tests thing, yeah. and they're giving their data to these institutions that are clearly going to use it and sell it and they're doing it willingly with no thought. Well, look, if they've got their privacy policy up, you know, the company's covered. I, the, all of these things are double-edged swords, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm not doing the DNA test. <laughs> um, so... Uh, back to more, how do you work with the business? How do you make the most effective and strong relationships with compliance in the business? What, what are your sort of top tips in that space? I think the most important thing is to, is to do everything you can to become human. Um, and I know that sounds like a funny idea, but a lot of times we're kind of seen as either ivory tower or the monolith on the other side of the wall. And the most important thing you can do is relationship building. So going to happy hours, going to you know drinks after work, um, involving yourself with what, knowing somebody's kids' names or where they go on vacation or you know when they are happy or sad, why is that? And I think that the more commonality you can find with people, look for it. Do you like the same sports teams? Do you like the same cereal in the morning? I don't care what it is. Like yeah. Finding something <laughs> to talk about so that when things get hard or weird or bad, you're already a trusted friend. Yeah. They know who you are. Yeah, so that whole trust piece. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah, that's interesting. And obviously, we've talked about a lot of different sort of regulatory changes that are going through. And for, for you know several years now, we've had really, you know, what we often describe as this tsunami of regulatory changes. So how prepared do you think the industry is? And maybe if we talk about sort of the financial industry um, uh, to start with, is how prepared are they for this continuing change and the, and the compliance requirements around that? Well, I think one of the most dangerous things people do is think that it's done. Right. You know, yeah. that whatever the landscape is now, it's finished. And for better or for worse, legislation tends to be reactive instead yeah. of proactive. And so you get another crisis and people go, oh my God, we need to legislate for this. And then it becomes maybe not all as well thought out. It's not really a plan that's knitted together to make it all work better. It's pieces. And so I think um, sometimes compliance officers get frustrated with that too, going, oh my gosh, you know, it's always changing. 
Well, yes, it is always changing. It will always be changing. <laughs> and if you think of that as job security, you'll be better off. You know? <laughs> so, just get a good yes, thing. Well, the only constant is change, isn't it? Death and taxes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so there are just so many hot topics, everything from privacy, you then, you know, you've got things like whistleblowing, um, all of these different policies, all of these different areas. Um, what, what kind of areas do you think need increased focus or, you know, which are the sort of top areas that, you know, people should be thinking about? I think that the biggest thing for me right now is the integration of risk. I think that people do, particularly in financial services, really silo off bribery from money laundering. They separate it from trade sanctions. These things are are interrelated. Yeah. You know, you end up on a trade sanctions list for bribery <laughs> or yeah. for slavery yeah. concerns. And bribery and slavery and working with governments, and they're all interrelated. Yeah. And so I think that the artificial separation of these risks is really a big problem. And if people looked at it more holistically and how the bad actors inter interrelate with, you know, money laundering, creating terrorism, financing, creating, you know, bribery issues, I think that the more we stop that and the more we look at how the business holistically deals with trying to find these bad actors and not have them be in our business, the more effective we can be as a compliance team and as a business. No, that's 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 fantastic. And do you think that that I mean that to me sounds like it would be consistent globally in terms of everyone needs to think through that. Uh, anything else that you think is a variation between you know east and west or any other things that globally I mean, you need I think to that sort of take a different focus on? Every culture has a different problem, right? The Asian cultures traditionally and European traditionally don't like the whistleblower hotlines and don't like to report that way. So that then the personal relationships are even more important, so that you can get that information. Um, so I think there's always cultural concerns in that, but. And core. kind of ways of working yeah. is different. Yeah. And, and that's been interesting for me as an American, you know, coming into Europe in particularly. Um, I didn't find a lot of wholehearted resistance, but at the same time there was definitely, particularly doing FCPA training, you know, okay, American girl coming in here and telling us what the <laughs> Americans need us to do. I mean, being really sensitive to those kinds of things, I think, and, and even putting them out in front of you and saying, look, this may be uncomfortable and I'm here on your team and I have to tell you these things and let me try to make it okay for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your predictions and your outlook sort of for, for the year ahead or going forward from a compliance perspective? I think it'll be re right now. I'm fascinated and horrified by all the tariff things going on and all the trade sanctions fighting. Um, I think the tit for tat stuff um, with the US government in China and Iran and Russia um, and then the responses from Europe to some of those things are going to be very, very difficult for companies mm. to navigate. Anytime you have one country saying, everybody has to do it my way, and the other country saying, if anybody does it their way, you can't deal with us. Multinationals, I mean, what do you do with that? You, yeah. You're making a risk assessment to say which one's the worst, and that's never a good time. So just in wrapping up our kind of expert area, what are the kind of key messages that you would um, leave with our risky women and hopefully some men on how to be more effective and... and 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 strategic <laughs> I think the, the most important thing is always to see it from their side you know, I think it's very easy particularly if you really believe in compliance to almost self-righteously say but this is the right thing and you're probably right but how do you get to the other person what did they want what you no know, are they really working for their bonus are they working to try to impress their boss how do you fit into making someone else look good yeah. and feel good about their work 
the more you can do that, the more you try to be in their head, the more effectively you can deliver your own messages and think about their motivation so that you can um, make them feel like you understand them. Yeah, sort of the joint goals. And as you said, that making the business successful overall. Yeah. Fantastic. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Risky Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. Okay, now we go into one of my favourite sections, the Risky Women Rants and Revelations. Oh my, yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with your revelations. So this is sort of the, what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, what's the thing that you know now that you wish you knew then? I wish I knew not to take everyone else's opinion so seriously. Um, Certainly, you know, in Southern California, there's body fascism, basically, and and this constant sense of being judged and realizing that actually being your whole self, um, showing up and and letting your personality shine and letting your interests be quirky or whatever it is, is actually makes you interesting and that conforming to everything everyone else expects you to do will ultimately make you less successful, less interesting, and less yourself. Yes, make you very bland. Exactly, right? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, and not a wildly strategic yeah. and effective... <laughs> not a risky woman, man. <laughs> exactly. It's not risky to be, <laughs> to be conformist. Exactly. Yes. And then, I always think of this as my, if I was queen for the day mm. sort of thing, what one thing would you change now and why? You know, I swear, I would make everyone take vacation. I think that we get so obsessed with our work and in our head and feel like everything we do is so important and actually taking some time away, whether it's a weekend or whatever, to actually get perspective and go, oh, these things are really important. These things really aren't. I think that there's a sense that work should be in every minute of every day of everyone's life and it's just, it just makes you less effective, not more. Absolutely, yeah. The, the the Scandinavian uh, principles that right. they seem to have. <laughs> I'm not sure about six weeks off at a time. I'm, I still have that American <laughs> sentiment, but <laughs> at least one man. Take a week know. off. I can convert. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, that's terrific. So now we've got our uh, Risky Women rapid fire round. Okay. And mm-hmm. I want a special, a special section in this one <laughs> with you because every week you give a tip of the week for your... Um, on compliance, so I think we need a special Risky Women Radio Tip of the Week. Okay, so my tip of the week is for your women, which is to be uh, unafraid to negotiate your salary. Women tend to uh, negotiate significantly less than men, and it's one of the major reasons for the pay gap, is that over time, 1-2% over 20 years becomes a huge number. And I want you to not be afraid to negotiate, because really, the worst place you're going to be is where you start. Take the risk to negotiate. Absolutely. Great, great tip. Um, and I had one other special question because I saw it on one of your tip of the weeks was, can we both be competent and confused when it comes to compliance <laughs> issues at the front lines? <laughs> um, I, I think the idea is that we aren't confused, <laughs> but that we have to allow uh, our people to be confused. That, put, that place has to be safe. Because if they're confused and they feel like they can't come to you, that is where you end up in trouble. So giving people permission to be confused, to be wrong, um, that vulnerability makes it so that, that you can talk to them and they can talk to you. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. 
Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our Rapid Fire Round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. Okay. All right, so what one word would you use to sum up the world from a governance risk and compliance perspective? One word. Um, Comprehensive. Mm. And your top risk for 2018? I think it still means privacy. Yep. And your cure for the cost of compliance? Understanding. Oh, good one. And biggest technology impacts on compliance and risk? Artificial intelligence. Outlook for the year ahead. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, uncertain? I'm always optimistic. It is a function of who I am. Um, And it's a funny thing, because am I optimistic about the state of the world? No. But that makes me optimistic about what compliance can do to help and our role and criticality in, in doing what we can. Brilliant. So... Thank you so much, Christy Grant Hart, for being our risky woman today. It's been fabulous to sit here at the Institute of Directors, uh, having a cup of coffee and, and talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong, For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be a part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.